It's wonderful to see all of you in the house of the Lord and those of us joining uh, online. And praise God for His continued faithfulness for us in the midst of these very highly uncertain times. Let's commit this time to the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and gracious Redeemer. In Jesus' name, Amen. Have you ever felt everything and everyone is working against you? Ever felt troubled that everyone sees your weaknesses and know about all your failures? Many of us can have these feelings of paranoia on occasion. It's natural to have these thoughts at times of high anxiety or lack of rest. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves, don't get paranoid. And thankfully, most of the time, these are just temporary feelings that we overcome. Some have even used this as a motivator for success. I know many of us here are working in Intel or have worked in Intel previously, so you will probably know that Intel's founder, Andy Grove, famously wrote a book called Only the Paranoid Survive. Now, in a very narrow sense, this can be taken as a positive when companies are always on the alert for disruptive change that will affect the success of their business or cause them to fail, if they are constantly on the alert, then they can avoid failure and go on the next uh, growth curve. But paranoia, in most cases, is unhealthy. If it becomes prolonged and takes over the life of a person. In terms of spiritual leadership, paranoia can eat away at the very heart of a leader causing disruption to faith and relationship with God. Last month, we saw the making of Saul as a leader, how God chose him despite his timid nature and anointed him as king over the tribes of Israel. Saul's recognition as king and leader rested with God's empowering presence in his life for Saul to function as a king in saving Israel from her enemies. You may recall from 1 Samuel chapter 10 that when Saul was first hailed as king, there were some who despised him and said, how can this fellow save us? It becomes apparent that instead of resting on God's faithfulness in sustaining him, Saul seemed to have always harbored the realization that on his own, he was not good enough to be king. And that led him to always strive to be proven in the eyes of the people, rather than trusting and obeying God in all things. His mode of leadership became one of trying to please people more than to please God. To look good on the outside, instead of being faithful to God, from within, from the inside. He became paranoid about his credibility as king. He made rash decisions to appear strong and decisive, even to the extent of disobeying instructions from God. And then he was quick to blame others, circumstances for his mistakes. Everything was always working against him, instead of repenting and accepting personal responsibility. In his increasing paranoia, Saul never realized that the true source of a leader's strength is not his own capabilities, but in trusting obedience to God. 
The big idea for today then is that trust and obedience to God are vital for spiritual leadership. Being paranoid about external success and outward popularity eats away at the heart of a, a spiritual leader, leading to the eventual downfall of that leader. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 11, we saw that God had anointed Saul as the king who would deliver Israel from her enemies. And with the empowering presence of God's Spirit, Saul was able to defeat the hostile tribes who undertook war with Israel. At the same time, however, instead of internalizing the truth that he depended on God alone for his continued success, Saul began to take matters into his own hands to ensure the appearance of success. He came to make decisions out of fear, anxiety, anger, and later on, as we will see as we go through the later chapters, bitterness and jealousy. He should have been leading from a position of trust and dependence on God. Two weeks ago, Pastor Sean preached about how Saul rashly decided to offer the sacrifices before the battle instead of waiting for Samuel as he was instructed because he saw that his men were scattering in fear. In the end, the Lord delivered a mighty victory to Israel, even though they were greatly outnumbered, through the fearless faith of Saul's son, Jonathan, as we saw in last week's sermon. How things might have worked differently for Saul if only he had the courageous and trusting faith of his son, Jonathan. As it was, Saul's kingship became increasingly based on the need to deliver military success by whatever means necessary, instead of becoming a man after God's heart, which was what the Lord was always looking for. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, God instructs Saul to attack and completely destroy the tribe of the Amalekites as divine judgment on the tribe for attacking Israel during the days of the Exodus wandering. These special declarations of uh, divine judgment meant that there would be to, to be no spoils of war, either in the form of people or goods, as everything was committed to the Lord in a form of destruction. These walls of divine judgment can be uncomfortable for us to deal with today, but it was a spiritual battle essentially against forces who were irreversibly hostile to the survival of Israel. God does battle, as it were, with forces that threaten to extinguish Israel's destiny to carry the hope of salvation to the nations. Because of this nature of divine judgment, there were strict instructions from the Lord that Israel's army was not to benefit from the spoils of victory by taking prisoners or possessions for their own enrichment, which was the standard practice of warfare at the time. Um, after victory, whatever spoils became your reward. Saul's downfall as king was his failure to carry out God's instructions fully because of his desire to cement his kingship further by securing the loyalty of his soldiers 
and displaying the rich plunder from the field of victory. Again, this was one of the main ways in which a king or military commander showed off uh, his success by displaying the spoils of war. There are three important lessons to learn from Saul's downfall as a spiritual leader. First, complacent success. Second, careless obedience. And third, critical failure. First, downfall comes from a complacent success. Saul's successful military track record made him complacent in his faith relationship with God. He failed to understand the true measure of success from God's perspective. Nothing fails like success. This uh, paradoxical phrase is quite popular now in business and management circles. The basic meaning is that success can make someone or a company blind to emerging trends that will impact the business or to defend a successful model without questioning whether that model is sustainable or whether it has become obsolete. For spiritual leaders, however, this becomes more serious. Reaching and maintaining success could blind a leader to the true foundation of that success. Success may make one thing that is all down to a leader's vision, personality, capabilities, and drive. Now, this may be indeed part of what makes success, but for a spiritual leader, success is above all defined by being constantly grounded with God's vision and how he is working out his purposes in areas that require the leader's faith and obedience. It is for God to lay out what is in God's own heart and for a spiritual leader to align with what and how God intends to work out his purposes. Now, a leader's prayers, petitions, as well as gifts and vision that God places in her heart and his, in his heart do have an important part in spiritual leadership. But the leader must be first rooted in God's ways in order to see how success is defined in God's eyes. If that grounding in God's presence and ways is not developed, then external signs of success can take hold of the leader's heart and mind. Success itself can create its own agenda in place of God. A success-driven agenda can replace God's agenda. As we saw last month previously, a spiritual leader must not have his or her own agenda, only God's agenda. But a successful track record and a constant drive to keep up the success can cause a dangerous shift in a leader's heart to be more preoccupied by the trappings of success or to be paranoid about achieving success so that God is no longer at the center of that leader's vision and heart desire. Overall, Saul had a successful military track record. In 1 Samuel 14, verse 47 to 48, that uh, Sister Lee read earlier, we read of his quite astonishing 
military career. After Saul had assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side. Moab, the Enonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines, these were tribes that were indeed on every side of the nation of Israel. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them, that is, he gained the victory over them. He fought valiantly and defeated the Amalekites, delivering Israel from the hands of those who had plundered them. As one commentary says, not since the days of Joshua had Israel seen such a successful military leader. And there is no doubt that this was part of God's anointing for Saul as a king who would protect and deliver God's people. Nonetheless, this successful track record hides some troubling aspects of Saul's kingship that the narrative text of 1 Samuel exposes. Saul's action consistently betrays a fear and paranoia that he must keep proving himself in the eyes of his soldiers and the people, or else it will all fall apart for him. In explaining his failure to fully obey God's instructions to destroy all the livestock, Saul says in 1 Samuel 15, verse 24, I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. His evident military victories and drive to maintain that success made him complacent in his faith relationship with God. Circumstances seemed to compel him to disobey or disregard God's expressed commands. Success for Saul became the end all that justifies compromises and decisions that do not align with God's ways. And so Saul had two burning issues. First is his underlying weakness and paranoia that people will reject him and abandon him as king. And second, his driving need to maintain military success at all costs, making him complacent about his faith relationship with God. The combination of his unresolved weakness and spiritual complacency was fatal for his leadership as God's anointed king. Here, Saul's experience shows the paradoxical nature of human weakness. When someone is submitted to God, weakness becomes strength with humility through the extraordinary grace and power of God. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, Paul says, but he, that is Christ, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul goes on to say, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. So Paul is not trying to cover up his weaknesses. He will boast in his weaknesses because that's the very center where Christ expresses his transforming power. In fact, uh, Samuel describes how God enabled Saul to be king despite his weakness in 1 Samuel 15, uh, verse 17. Although you were once small in your own eyes, his timid nature, did, not you, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? Remember the 
the power of God fell on him. The Spirit of God came powerfully on him. However, when a spiritual leader pursues a success agenda and becomes complacent about his or her relationship with God, the same weakness can manifest itself as anger, suspicion, pride, bitterness, jealousy, paranoia, moral compromises, and finally, full-blown sin. Again, when one is submitted to Christ, weakness is transformed into strength under God's grace. But when one is pursuing something other than Christ, when one is pursuing a self-success agenda, the weakness drags down the leader. Our commitment to Christ is not something that we can treat lightly or in a complacent way because in a lot of cases, the shift in our loyalties and attention from God's agenda to a self-success agenda can be very subtle. Some key ways to examine ourselves as spiritual leaders. If God were to take the, the fruits of our success and ministry and hand it to, over to another, or if he were to raise up another leader with impact, how threatened or upset will we feel? Do I tend to edify others and genuinely want them to succeed, or do I tend to undermine them? Have I made any moral compromises in achieving success? None of us, none of us are perfect. And it will always be a spiritual struggle to remain loyal and true to the Lord as we strive to accomplish significance and meaning in our lives and ministries. We must not be complacent but consistently submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit's examination. And the Holy Spirit will convict us and correct us, not to condemn us, but to bring us to repentance and further growth and impact in our lives. And so for our first reflection question, how do you define success in life? How will God define success in your life? And for the kids, what are some of the things uh, you think God wants you to succeed in?
Second, a leader's downfall comes from careless disobedience or careless obedience. In contrast to how the secular world commonly thinks about leadership, spiritual leadership is grounded in submissive obedience to God. The fundamental reason why God would want to place anyone under a spiritual leader is that the leader is above all humble and obedient to God. The followers follow the leader as one who is subject to God's authority and will be held accountable to how that leadership is exercised. Spiritual leaders are not free to make up the rules for themselves, neither are they free to exercise their given authority as they see fit. Instead, their one defining characteristic is to carefully obey all that God has shown them to do and steward faithfully all that God has entrusted to them. For example, you can uh, refer to Joshua chapter 1, verse uh, 7 to 8, where God uh, tells Joshua, be careful to obey all the things in the law. They understand that they cannot be careless in obeying God because partial obedience is still disobedience. I remember when Bishop Jayakumar was conducting Experiencing God course in our church when he was the pastor in charge, he remarked that partial obedience is full disobedience. And that really made me sit up and listen, right? You have to sweat over these things, right? Partial obedience is full disobedience. Saul was given strict instructions that he was to take no prisoners or plunder in the form of livestock. But after the battles, Saul and his army took the best of the sheep and cattle. In 1 Samuel 15 verse 9, indicates that they were unwilling to destroy all the good cattle and sheep, the fat calves and lambs. These were incredible, incredibly valuable possessions. When confronted by Samuel, Saul explained that they were reserving the best of the animals to sacrifice to the Lord, but Samuel clearly believed they were pouncing on the opportunity for plunder. Perhaps Saul and his men meant to capture the most healthy and valuable livestock as rewards of war and offer a portion of that in a ceremonial sacrifice to the Lord. Throughout most of history, getting a share of plunder, as I mentioned earlier, was one of the key ways in which soldiers would get amply rewarded on top of any wages a commander or king could offer them. Saul's eventual admission in verse 24 that he was afraid of the men and gave in to them suggests that the men expected and probably demanded the best of the livestock as plunder. But even if they sincerely wanted to offer at least part of the animals in a sacrificial offering to the Lord, Samuel's response is especially telling. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Saul partially obeyed God's instructions, but he was judged that he had failed totally in being faithful. God. Although he carried out the mission and achieved military success, it was a moral and spiritual failure 
in terms of his leadership. Success cannot cover up spiritual or moral failure. Saul then tried to compensate by offering animals as a sacrifice to the Lord. But disobedience cannot be compensated by offerings, charity, or good works. Remember, the, the, the defining characteristic of a spiritual leader is full submissive obedience to God. Subsequent good works cannot compensate for the lack of obedience. We must come clean and confess our disobedience in full repentance. Saul tried his best to obey just enough to make a plausible excuse and offer self-justification. But he was not fully on board with God. He was not fully at the centre of God's heart's desire. He skirted round the edges between partial obedience and non-compliance. As we saw earlier, his partial obedience arose from his need for a success agenda, leading to arrogance and fears that his men will leave him, exposing his weakness. And the most tragic of all, when confronted, Saul did not fully repent. He admitted his error, but you can still see that he was obsessed with being vindicated and honoured in the sight of the people. In verse 30, we read, I have sinned, Saul says, but please honour me, he tells Samuel, before the leaders of my people and before Israel, come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. You see, Saul was trying to get Samuel to conduct an official worship and affirm his leadership before the people so that his rule may be secure. Saul's actions betray the fact that he was not a king after God's own heart. He was obsessed with proving himself in the eyes of the people and covering his paranoia of losing the support of his followers. And so for our second reflection question, how can we become careless in our obedience to God? And for the kids, why does God want us to follow his instructions completely?
Third, there comes a point of critical failure that causes the downfall of a leader. Small mistakes and failures can lead up to a critical failure. There were two very tragic air crashes involving the Boeing 737 MAX aircraft within a six-month period in 2018 and 2019. The tragedies resulted from a design flaw in the updated 737 aircraft design that incorporated bigger engines. This caused the aircraft to nose up during certain high-speed maneuvers. And this was the first step of increased safety risk. To counter this, Boeing used an automated software control system to automatically push the nose back down and stabilize the aircraft, preventing the stall. During flight testing, it was also discovered that during some slow speed situations, for example, during takeoff, the aircraft would also fly in an unstable way, tend to nose up as well. And so Boeing engineers decided to apply the same automated software to correct, uh, to correct this situation. Even though it looked like a sensible option at first glance, it meant that the software is now enabled to act more aggressively to correct the plane than it was originally intended for during uh, high-speed maneuvers. Just a small correction can um, you know, make the change, but during slow speed, a slower speed situation, you need more aggressive action to correct um, the uh, direction or, or, or the plane. So now the software is, 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 is changed uh, to act more aggressively, to change the controls more aggressively than it was originally intended for. So this introduced a dangerous risk now to flight safety. And for commercial reasons, uh, Boeing chose not to disclose the existence of this automated software control system to flight regulators in the US and the, airline, the airlines themselves, the customers, as it would have meant a delayed acceptance and additional flight training for pilots. This increased the risk of failure considerably. The final fatal flaw was the fact that there was only one a single sensor that fed critical information to the automated software control system. This was a single point of failure risk that was never addressed by Boeing, again, because of cost reasons, commercial reasons. In both tragic crashes, the automated software control system received incorrect, false data from the, that single sensor and caused the aircraft to point down aggressively, leaving the pilots with very little time to correct the error. Taken on its own, each risk may have been manageable and could have been corrected over time, but taken as a accumulating series of failures and wrong decisions, they led to critical failure that costed lives. Paying attention to details and getting seemingly small decisions right is also the foundation of Christian stewardship. In Luke chapter 16, verse 10, Jesus says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will be also dishonest with much. And I believe this principle also applies to spiritual leadership. 
leaders who are careless in obeying God in seemingly small ways or make moral compromises in to achieve results are leading themselves to critical failure. If we can't be faithful in the small things, how can we be faithful in the big things that God has entrusted to us? Saul's failures of obedience and faithfulness have been building. At first glance, they may not seem to us as serious failures. For example, in offering sacrifices and sparing the livestock. But they are serious because they go against God's express commands. They betray the fact that God's, uh, Saul's heart was filled up with other preoccupations and obsessions about his standing rather than his relationship with God and what God required of him. Saul's failure stemmed from a combination of arrogance in obsessing about his honour and weakness in fearing that his followers will reject him. Instead of strengthening himself in God, who was the true source of his security and stability. As it was, uh, Saul took matters into his own hands where he should have obeyed God's instructions. And he gave in into his followers' demands when he should have exercised godly leadership and example. Samuel captures the critical failure of Saul in this way in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. It's far better to be rejected by people for doing what is right rather than being rejected by God for doing what is wrong. This was something that Saul never really took to heart. How can we avoid Saul's mistakes today? For starters, spiritual disciplines help us cultivate life with God and life within community. They can also act as circuit breakers that help us stop sins and errors from destroying our leadership potential and spiritual life. For example, pay attention to the state of our souls. Are we at rest? Do we have God's peace? Or are we always agitated, angry, suspicious? Why is that? Now, in, in leadership, in ministry, you, you will tend to have frustrations, uh, disagreements, etc. But if you are constantly in a state of anger and agitation, we need to find out, you, you need to find out why. I'd like to recommend a book, Soul Keeping, by John Ockberg. Um, you know, a nice book to kind of read about this uh, whole area of uh, paying attention to the state of our souls. Next, make prayer as a priority in a leader's life. Obviously, this is the obvious thing, but being obvious doesn't mean it's easy. It's very hard to practice uh, when we are busy with many, many demands on our time. Spending time with God is usually the first thing that goes out. Third, pursue knowing God through His Word and by learning to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. If we don't know God's Word for ourselves, how can we lead spiritually? If we don't catch God's vision for His people, where are we leading others to? 
We can only align to God's agenda if we know His heart. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 13, Moses says, prays this to God, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Please God, not people, but love and care for people deeply with God's heart. Practice humility and spiritual accountability. Allow trusted and mature believers to speak into your life and provide that critical feedback when necessary. Our third reflection question is this. What are the spiritual disciplines and circuit breakers in our life that help prevent critical failures in leadership? And for the kids, why is it important to find and stop mistakes earlier rather than later? Right. In conclusion, know that inattention to God's commands can lead to leadership failure. Be obedient to God in every aspect of life and practice spiritual disciplines consistently to lead faithfully. I just want to quickly uh, ask us to spend this time. Uh, you, you, some of you are um, in ministries, some of you are heading initiatives a lot of times we are angry and stressed without realizing it because we have not paid attention to our souls. It's only when we explode then we realize that we have been angry or stressed. I'd like us to invite us to just spend a short moment before the Lord and come in a spirit of repentance and confession. The Lord is merciful. He knows our weaknesses, but remember, weakness is transformed into strength under God's grace and 
If there's any need to confess, I just want to invite us to do that as uh, spiritual leaders and uh, developing leaders to confess ourselves before the Lord. And if there's any areas that we need to seek forgiveness or to forgive, I'd like to invite us to do that as well. Um, the earlier we address these issues within us and between us, um, the far better it will be for God's community. So I'd like to invite us just to spend um, just a short period of time to come before the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, we come before you as very imperfect uh, people. And Lord, even as spiritual leaders, we find it all too easy to be distracted and, and turn our gaze away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, there are so many times that we have perhaps taken the easy way out, we have taken compromises. We have hurt one another and hurt ourselves. But you are always forgiving. You are God who heals us and restores us and makes us whole again. And so, Lord, we want to repent, Lord, of the ways in which we have exercised our leadership, our ministries that are not pleasing in your sight or we have lost sight of the vision that you have entrusted to us, and we pray, Father, that you renew us by your Spirit and bring our hearts and our minds and our gaze back to the Lord Jesus Christ, our gracious Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.